Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to venture where reason meets the unexplained, and where the unexplained might just uh, be. Hello, everybody. I hope that you had a great New Year's and are ready to start 2024. Whew, can you imagine that? 2024. I wasn't used to 2023. Actually, I wasn't used to 2020, so uh, I'm way behind on the uh, ability to grasp what time it is. Maybe it's because I don't want to go forward, seeing the way things are going. Actually, I do want to go forward, because I think we can have, I think we can have a good 2024. I think 2024 is going to be a better year. It's going to be tumultuous and important, but I think it can be a turning point to go to a better place than where we've been lately. Now, you wouldn't know that if you were uh, Joe Biden. Now, Joe gave a speech yesterday. Some of you um, probably watched it because you'd be riveted to it because it's so it's fascinating. And he didn't seem to think that uh, things were going well with the uh, other side. He, of course, thinks that Bidenomics and all the other nonsense that he's been programmed to say is uh, going great, despite what everybody else thinks. And the fact that he has probably the lowest, I think he does have the lowest rating for a president at this time that since we've been doing it. Uh, but he's uh, probably doesn't even know that. Uh, he's probably not told that. And if he has been told that, he still may not know it. Anyway, it was an interesting speech. I'm, it, it was more of a kind of an exercise in pharmacology, I think, than uh, politics, because uh, he's all hyped up. Ooh, I wonder what they do to him to make him like that. It doesn't last long, and it's kind of bizarre to watch. It is bizarre to watch. But uh, well, let's give let's give some samples here, and uh, that you can uh, listen to because this is this this is what we call not true. From the United States Capitol. It was almost in disbelief as you first turned on the television. For the first time in our history, insurrectionists had come to stop the peaceful transfer, transfer of power in America. First time. Smashing windows, shattering doors, attacking the police. Outside, gallows were erected as the MAGA crowd chanted, Hang Mike Pence. Inside, They hunted for Speaker Pelosi. The House was chanting as they marched through and smashed windows, where's Nancy? Over 140 police officers were injured. Jill and I attended the funeral of police officers who died as a result of the events of that day. Because Because of Donald Trump's lies, they died because these lies brought a mob to Washington. Well, I think the first thing we can say here is that these are lies. (laughs) I don't want to laugh about it, but it's it's unbelievable, the hypocrisy, to accuse that Donald Trump's, quote, lies led to these things happening, most of which are, in fact, lies. He attended funerals of officers. No officers were killed on January 6th. Brian Sicknick who they had lie in state in the uh, Capitol and tried their darndest to make him a a victim of January 6th 
attempt to compromise democracy. And uh, let's see, I'm almost at the New York Times. Uh, let's see. Here's what the New York Times said. They said that pro-Trump supporters attacked that citadel of democracy. My, they have some high-flying rhetoric, don't they? Overpowered Mr. Brian Sicknick, 42, struck him in the head with a fire extinguisher, according to two law enforcement officials, with a bloody gash in his head. Mr. Sicknick was rushed to the hospital and placed on life support. None of that happened. Actually, sadly enough, he died of a stroke and that he, in fact, didn't seem to have anything to do with January 6th. Uh, he had no injuries visible. That's all straight-up untruths. And we do know one person that was killed that day, of course, is Ashley Babbitt, 115-pound woman, uh, shot by a Capitol policeman that we didn't even know who it was for quite some time and have no idea what the investigation was. And I would say, watching the video, that deadly force like that really was not justified in that situation. And unfortunately, someone died. But not the people that Joe Biden says died. He has a very confusing way of mixing the facts, of which there are very few in his speeches, with fanciful rhetoric and it is disingenuous and it is harmful to the country in a way that is much more dangerous than the things he's talking about he thinks are dangerous to the country yeah i think that probably a little bit more joe here he's a little further along in it he's starting to run out of steam he's still pretty hateful uh, but uh just gives you some idea of what his campaign is going to be about is coming from a president who called, when he visited cemeteries, called dead soldiers suckers and losers. Remember that? I remember that it wasn't ever confirmed. Yeah, somebody else said that. Sometimes. He's starting to run out of gas Irish, here. The Irish, I mean, can't be seen. Yes, yes, that's right. He's also getting that point where he's clenching and unclenching his fists, which I think is a sign of something a little unusual. Who in God's name do you think he is? Former aides, Trump plans to invoke the Insurrection Act, which will allow him to deploy, which is not allowed to do an insurrection, allow him to deploy U.S. military forces on the streets of America. He said it. He calls those who oppose him vermin. He talks about the blood of America as being poisoned. Right. Echoing the same exact language used in Nazi Germany. Ah, there we go. Boy. He proudly yeah. posts on social media the words that best describe his 2024 campaign. Quote, revenge, quote, power, and quote, dictatorship. <laughs> now, you see how selective editing of what Trump has said. And let's not kid ourselves. He is a bloviator. He likes to talk. He talks off the top of his head. He uses a lot of inflammatory language. But a lot of this is taken either out of context or was 
I think, sort of a satirical discussion from Trump. Besides, we all know what President Trump does as president because he's been president. And as far as revenge and retribution, yeah, those are unattractive things to come into office on. But I think that we all would like to see some accountability for individuals that did not uphold their oath of office. Like, I don't know, maybe people who wouldn't enforce the border or this or that. If there's a person who has consistently not upheld the duties invested in him by the Constitution of the United States, it's Joe Biden. The list of things that that he is required to do that he will not do is fairly long. Yet this is his campaign. Now, this is going to be the entire campaign. I think his handlers, as much as Joe wants to run on how great Joe is, because he's one of the only people that says that, they're going to run the entire campaign about Donald Trump. They're going to cherry pick everything that they can find and act as though he is a complete outsider that we have no knowledge about except that he has all of this terrible rhetoric. And, of course, you have to get to the National Socialist uh, references. I was surprised at how long it took uh, Biden to get there. Uh, He was beginning to run out of steam. He does whisper in this speech, too. I chose not to play that. People find it way too creepy. But this is the campaign. You're hearing it now. You're hearing all of the themes that are going to come out, all of the half-truths, all of the things that were unverified, or somebody said he said, and all this kind of stuff, just bypass completely what he did when he was president. Things were a whole lot better than they are now. They don't want you to remember that. Yes, that's the song I've been suggesting for uh, the Biden campaign, but I haven't got any bites on that. Uh, but, you know, we talked about that in the first uh, segment. We see what the campaign is going to be, and his numbers on almost every issue are abysmal. Uh, nobody trusts him on really anything. And what's really frightening to them uh, on the left is that he is really rapidly losing support amongst uh, Hispanic voters and black voters. If you look at the historical voting patterns, Biden needs 97, 98% of the black vote to go anywhere. And it looks like a good 20% of that vote is angling towards Trump right now. That's a massive blow to his electability, to say nothing about his failing support among Hispanic voters. The idea that everyone that might have a Spanish or Mexican or Colombian surname thinks that a wide open border is a great thing, and that uh, they should keep Biden in power so that he can continue that policy is not true. And they don't seem to know, or if they do know, they don't seem to care. So, as we discussed before, it makes you wonder why they're continuing to do it. My theory is they still think that that is partly true, because they can always use that argument, and this is, of course, brand new, uh, racism uh, against Republicans if they want to close the border, uh, even though a number of uh, the border crossers, well, by that a high percentage of them, a significant minority of them, aren't even coming from Mexico or Central America or even South America. 
people are coming to Mexico and then heading into the United States from other places, Haiti, for instance, Dominican Republic, apparently uh, from Europe, <laughs> Eastern Europe. And also, there's a lot of military-age uh, Chinese that seem to have been see- coming across the border. Not that that should give us any pause or anything. So there's a lot of miscalculation there. And somebody has to know that's what's going on. So what's the end result here? Well, it's, I hate to say this because you get called a conspiracy theorist or, you know, someone that should be wearing a tinfoil hat, but I mean, they're, it's a replacement, isn't it? I mean, they're trying to bring people in that they believe that in the end will support them. That will supplant or overwhelm the people in the country that don't. And how do they get to support them? They bring in individuals who most likely are going to have a very difficult time finding a good job or contributing to society because of the skill set that they bring. Our society is changing sort of background training you have to have to do almost any job now requires a lot more than it did 20 years ago. And you have to be able to have some linguistic ability, uh, a little bit of basic education, and so forth. doesn't mean that the people coming into the country couldn't do it. It's just that there's, you know, two or three steps behind in trying to catch up with this stuff. So there's going to be a lot of jobs that they're just not going to be qualified for. And the Democrats want to make the so-called social safety net so attractive that you can just stay in it. That creates what I have to say. I was listening to uh, someone on the radio this week, and they said, and I agreed completely, that what the Democrats want, and they probably would like a, a little better than this, but they want a 51-49 country with them on the fifty-one. And they want to have 50%, 51% of the country completely beholding to them for various reasons. Support, social welfare net, all this kind of stuff, you know. And the other 49%, uh, who may not agree with them, their job is to support that. And in a absolute democracy, which they seem to want, a 51% Majority is enough to do everything. That's why our framers of the Constitution and founders of the country were so against the idea of a direct democracy where everybody votes on everything. And it just takes 51% of anybody to, ch- to do something. And the next day, if it's uh, 51% of something else or goes back the other direction, that's how it goes. I mean, unlike many of our politicians today, and fortunately many people today, they were very adroit students of history. And they had seen how that kind of democracy leads to chaos. And it also leads to demagogues. And it leads eventually to people who are simply way autocrats because they are able to control the masses. It becomes the tyranny, the majority, 
if we look at our good friend John Stuart Mill. So they did a lot of things to try and insulate that, to still give individuals a high degree of participation in the governance, but not direct on every issue. So do we have the Electoral College prevent the large states or the more populous states from overwhelming the smaller states? We have direct representation of two senators from each state despite the population. We have three branches of government that are supposedly separate, and that separation of powers is supposed to balance things out. Now, we've seen that almost obliterated between the executive and the legislative. And it isn't just Joe Biden doing it. It's been done for quite a while. I think it probably started in a, in a way that is a little disturbing, under a little bit under Nixon, and obviously it was something that was tried heavily under Lyndon Bain Johnson, is to start creating executive orders that have the impact of legislation that eventually you know, are powered by the bureaucracy and can have an effect of convicting a person of a crime, which seems like a law, doesn't it, rather than a regulation. And it's just gone on and on. And we're at that point now where if we don't get some kind of separation there, well, there are, the separation is what we're trying to do, some kind of control over executive orders and power so that it's balanced out so that by the legislature, we're going to be in a very bad position because the executive already has so much power because they control the levers of the administrative state. Now, originally, when the framers were trying to come up with how the United States or um, at that even even all the way back to the you know the Continental Congress figure out how to govern the executive was never seen as such an overpowering figure and of course part of that was because the executive for decades never had so much bureaucracy at his control never had the ability to influence individuals' lives so quickly and meaningfully. That was something that was not even considered. So as you, as you increase the bureaucracy, the, the amount of federal intervention in what happens in the individual states, and justify that under, for Lord's sakes, the Commerce Clause, which is what's been going on, you begin to amass power in the executive. It was never really intended to be there. And when you have that, here's something about power. When people have power, they tend to use it. And you've got to be very careful about the person you put in a situation like that who's going to use that power. And we've not been particularly careful about that, as you can see from this poor angry, delusional, whatever, um, individual that is president. 
He mentions in his speech, by the way, that 81 million people voted for him. It just seems so hard to believe. I'm, I'm, you know. But once again, remember, the campaign is going to be about Donald Trump and what an evil, devious, underhanded person he is and all the terrible things he'll do if he's elected president, despite the fact that he's already been president and had a much more successful presidency than Joe Biden and, frankly, Barack Obama. And we could probably go back before that to uh, George Bush. So we already know, because said in the first segment. So it's an interesting attempt. Once again, it's the idea that they're just going to swamp you so your memory is only focused on what they're saying right now. We know a lot about right now, right now. Uh, we can look around, and people are seeing things that make them very nervous. So it's almost a good opportunity to be more alert and judicious in Hi, everybody. We'll be back here for our third segment here. I wanted to talk a little bit about what was going on in the courts with this uh, attempt to get uh, Trump off the ballot in a couple of states. More than that, uh, Colorado, where I'm at, of course, is famous now. We've had far too much uh, spotlight on Colorado and national news this last year for reasons that I would prefer not to have seen. But the uh, four members of the seven-member Colorado Supreme Court had felt that the president had, in fact, uh, engaged in an insurrection and was not eligible for the office of president, which was especially interesting since the lower court had decided that he had engaged in insurrection, but that the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment that says that former Essentially, individuals who have led an insurrection against the uh, United States cannot serve as officers of the United States, and that the president is not technically an officer of the United States. He takes a different oath of office than, uh, say, congressmen and certainly individuals on the administrative side. So that was the reasoning there, even though the lower court said that he was an insurrectionist. So the Supreme Court has to consider that. Now, most states have slapped that down. Uh, even California this last week uh, just dismissed a case brought by someone along similar lines. And part of what Trump is going to, his lawyers rather, are going to submit to the court is that the eligibility to service President of the United States first is outlined in the Constitution itself. And that anything else about that eligibility is reserved to Congress, not the state courts, to consider and decide. It seems to be simple. It seems to be straightforward. It's just an end run around Congress if the states get to decide who can run for national office. It's Think about if that stood, where you can take a pretty slippery term of insurrection apply it, who knows to whom, and take them off the ballot, even in a couple of states. That's it. They had to carry an awful lot of states to to win if you're not even on the ballot in a couple. So that's a terribly bad idea. Donald Trump, Joe Biden, anybody aside. Now, it was very clear that 
Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment was passed after the Civil War uh, to begin as a process of allowing the federal government to engage in uh, what we would think of now as Reconstruction and really get into the business of getting their hands and feet into the states. But everybody knew what they meant in Section 3. They're talking about the Confederacy. We're talking about a war where 600,000 people died from both sides. It's a little different than what they're trying to say was an insurrection. Here's something else that is kind of interesting. During the Reconstruction, the Congress had initially barred many former Confederates from serving in the government. However, the restriction eased over time. There's an Amnesty Act of 1872 which removed political restrictions from most of the former Confederate officials. So there was a significant number of ex-Confederates being elected or appointed to federal offices, including Congress. Now, just some good examples here is someone you may not know, but Alexander H. Stevens was the vice president of the Confederacy. He was subsequently elected as a U.S. representative from Georgia, from 1873 to 1882. A major general in the Confederate Army, John B. Gordon, was a United States senator from Georgia from 1873 to 1880, and again from 1891 to 1897. And Zebulon B. Vance, who was the wartime governor of North Carolina, served as a U.S. senator from 1879 to 1894. There's a, there's a number of examples like that, by the way. So, really, Article 3 of the 14th Amendment is a fairly elastic thing, apparently, as far as the Congress was concerned then. And it certainly is inapplicable to Donald Trump. And it's inapplicable to the office of the president, and I would suggest the vice president, who also takes a different oath. And the idea of an insurrection, if we take what is clearly the intent of Congress at the time of the passage, there's just nothing to support that argument. Now, of course, in Maine, we didn't have to bother with going in front of a court. We just have the Secretary of State uh, in Maine just say he's not eligible for the ballot. In Colorado, we at least had judges... Uh, who thought about it and came to a conclusion. We disagree with it. Certainly I do. But there was, it went through the process. And it'll continue through the process of the United States Supreme Court. And we will see what they do. Although I think I got a pretty good idea what they will do. They're going to say just what we said, that the, it is inapplicable to the presidency and that uh, Congress is responsible for the eligibility of the president as a national institution and not state institutions. I mean, that's kind of at the heart of it. But at least we had a process here in Colorado. The judges heard the, heard the case. Justices heard the case. They made a decision, and it was recorded, and it was uh, taken up for appeal to the United States Supreme Court. That is at least the proper process. In Maine, we have one person just deciding no. And I don't know if you've seen 
some of the video of this person who's the Secretary of State in Maine. But she is just giddy with excitement over all this attention she's been getting. And, of course, she seems to be, from my reading about it and some pictures she has of Biden and so forth, a pretty hyper-partisan person. Now, here in Colorado, we have a Secretary of State kind of cut from the same cloth. And I suspect there are others. And I've said before that I think that Secretaries of State, while they certainly can be members of political parties, must work very hard to avoid, even as we like to say, the appearance of impropriety in executing their duties, because it opens up every election to a lack of confidence. And we can put up with a little lack of confidence here and there, because we all know that shenanigans have been getting pulled in elections in this country since we've had elections in this country. But by and large, we believe that they turn out correctly. Now, a lot of people seem to be concerned that that may not be true. And there's plenty of evidence out there that gives them some ammunition with that particular approach. But it's incredibly dangerous to our civilization here. I'm not talking about our democracy, whatever that means. We are, we're, we're a constitutional republic that has a democratic, with a small d, approach to government, which is to say that we allow all citizens to participate in government and vote on important issues and issues that have been delineated by the Constitution, by the way. We don't get to vote on everything. It's a good thing. Uh, but you can imagine that people who believe in administrative state, who believe in an overweening, powerful federal government of some sort. Now, I hesitate to call it a federal government because a federal government has at its roof, root, when you say federal, what? You know, it has it, the idea of federalism, which is, you know, the sharing of power between the national government and the state governments. I think what the government in D.C. would like is not to be a federal government at all, but to be a national government, something very much like, say, France, which, as I think many people know, is a lot smaller and has a lot of tumult. But nevertheless... It is essentially a national government with councils and so forth that have input into that and have some local authority. But in the end, it's a national government. It's similar that way in, I think, England. I think when you look at the parliamentary systems in England, Canada, and Australia, they seem very much like what we do here from the outside. But remember, they don't have the hard backstop for our rights and against the power of the state in a constitution like we do. They have some important documents. They have some guidelines from these documents and things. Everybody brings up the Magna Carta and this and that. But the reality is that the parliamentary system in those countries is able to curtail a lot more liberties of those citizens than we're able to do in the United States because of the Constitution, as chewed up as it has become, still prevents some things from happening. There are things that can get you in jail in 
the United Kingdom that would simply be bad manners or jerk behavior in the United States. But criminalizing those is certainly on the agenda of many people on the left to try and emulate what's going on in those countries, Britain especially. And you saw how draconian Australia became during COVID. You've seen the lunacy that's come out of Canada with Trudeau, who's not only incompetent, but has a seemingly dictatorial streak running through him that maybe a part part of it's because his his ego, but we have seen a lot of crackdown. Things are going on in Canada that we don't hear very much about. You know, the province of Alberta is very upset with the central government out of Quebec uh, because well, they believe what's happening is harmful to them and that the government in Quebec, the supposedly national government, is not considering their welfare to any significant extent. So there's a lot going on up there, too. We don't hear about it as much. Uh, we do hear about some of the crazier things. But at the end of the day, we are really the only democracy, if you want to call us that, that has a constitution that operates not as a backstop, which I have said that, but it's more of a wall between the citizens and the government. In the sense that there are certain doorways in this wall that the Constitution had created that allows the federal government to interact with the citizens. Criminally, uh, regulation of you know, some interstate commerce, all those kinds of things. Those are the doorways that allow the national government, in this case for a while anyway, the federal government, to step into the states and exercise power. But those doors and windows used to be a lot smaller and a lot less of them. Now the, the wall has become completely penetrated in many instances. I mean, I'm feeling like it's heading towards our southern border. Uh, every time it seems to come up, although this, this court, Supreme Court we has, have now has done a couple, two good things, but many times when it comes up, there is an effort to find a way for the national government to be able to create a new doorway or enlarge the doorway they want to go through to have more and more direct effect on the states. That's not the way things are set up in any stretch of the imagination. And because of that, we don't have a lot of confidence and uh, that we the best things are being done for us. We're a little like Alberta up in Canada. We're starting to get a strong feeling that the ends that are foreseen by the national government are not things that are in our best interest. And that's going to happen from time to time, depending on what your interest is or something like that. But it seems to be more often than not now. Because if your if your best interest is a lot of personal freedom, choice, and personal liberty, then yeah, that's getting slammed pretty hard. We've seen some 
I think, kind of unsettling things in gun control this year. Uh, the things in Washington and Oregon, the semi-automatic ban uh, trying in Illinois. Uh, we've seen the ridiculous stuff that comes out of California. And that is just kind of the canary in the coal mine. We see that because gun control is a hot topic and gets still gets press. There are other things out there that I think are happening in terms of regulation of our everyday lives that aren't quite as noticeable. And uh, we have to be more aware of those and look for them and bring them up. But sometimes they're not very sexy. We just allow, for instance, the Bureau of Reclamation or the BLM or people like that to impose more and more regulation on public lands or try and assert more authority over waterways and all those kinds of things that, hey, you know, it's not uh, it's not quite as, uh, you know, exotic or enthusiastic or rather enthusiasm generating as gun control, but it's still very important. And a lot of these things lead to financial ruin, really. Because they disturb the populace. They make industries go out of business. They create too much power in the governmental systems. And one thing we do know is government really does a terrible job of spending money, even if it's relatively benign. And it's getting less and less benign, it seems like. Let's look at California, for instance, which is essentially a failed state at this point. Uh California, when Governor Newsom took over, this is the, this is the hubris of this guy. You know, he's out there talking about the great job they're doing in in uh, California, and he's debating Ron DeSantis, and he's just all smiles and hair gel. And in the meantime, he has a state that has went from, you know, in forty years, from something people were really proud of to something people are trying to get out of. I mean, they may lose four more congressional seats because of lost population in California. The first time they've been consistently losing population ever in their history. The other thing that is just staggering to me is that California, when Newsom took office, and I'm doing this from memory, I believe that they had a $98 billion surplus. This year, I believe they have a $67 billion deficit. That's a pretty big swing, isn't it? The, don't think that speaks of uh, fiscal responsibility. And then, and this is just, this is just mind-boggling to me, Newsom, last week, signed in to law the ability for undocumented individuals, illegal aliens, to qualify for Medi-Cal, which is California's version of Medicaid. That's uh, their state-supported uh, medical insurance. Undocumented aliens, you know, illegal aliens. In a state that has an enormous swing in its finances. And yet they do that. Now, if that is the action 
of a person who is, I don't know, compass mentis? Because non-compos mentis means not of sound mind, so I would say compos mentis means of sound, of sound mind. I don't know how anybody can look at that and think this makes any kind of sense. Now, what, what's, what's the idea behind it? Now, I know when I hear the speeches that, oh, nobody should be denied this or that or whatever the case may be, but yeah, that's not really it, is it? What are you trying to do? I don't know. Part of me thinks that Newsom still thinks he's going to run for president because when you look at Joe and then Kamala, I mean, you know, I'm sure many of the Democrats would love to see somebody else step up, that he's trying to show that he is a huge advocate for the disadvantaged, right? Now, that's all balloon gas, and uh, you can't be an advocate for the disadvantaged by disadvantaging the advantaged, and that's been what's happening in California for the last 25 years. That's why people, high earners and have businesses, have been leaving the state. They're leaving New York. The amount of money, if I remember right, in California, that 1% of the population pays 40% of their state income tax. That's just a figure that's floating around in my head. So you just can't afford to keep losing these people, yet they don't seem to care. They don't change anything, and they add to the burden. So there has to be some kind of agenda to that. It can't just be everybody's crazy. Now, if you look at the California legislature, there's a lot of them that seem crazy. And you say, oh, I see how that happened. They don't have any idea what they're what they're doing. You know, in a, in a regular world, they would be someplace in a rubber room. But now the room is apparently the legislature. So... You wonder what that is. And if California, as so goes California, so goes the rest of the country, remember that old saying? If that's the case, that's not very encouraging for us, is it? So that's why this 2024, we started talking about that, this in the very beginning of the show, I think can be a good year. Because so much of the progressive left's hand has been shown what they really want to do and how they really deal with things and the anger and the vitriol and really the violence uh, is most on their side. We don't want to contribute any of those things from our side. We really want to, and if you see someone thinking that way, you want to discourage them. But it, it is on their side, and we've seen that, and I think that is a powerful force to turn out the vote. Uh, I think that trying to keep Trump off the ballot and trying to indict him just shows a large percentage of the population that they're afraid of what he might do. And I think that the things he might do, they shouldn't be afraid of, but are good for the country. See you next week.